It was one of those old houses you see from time to time, standing off the road, across the field, out toward the country, the roof mostly gone, windows sagging and empty, peering at you over a half-rotted porch as you drive by. It's hard to believe that anyone had ever lived there, but according to my great-grandfather, it was the house he was born in. His excitement grew as we pulled onto the bare dirt track that led to the house. The car was still rolling when out he popped and was moving as fast as his cane would let him up the stairs and through the black hole that served as a door. Following as fast as we could, we too crossed the threshold and came to a sudden and abrupt halt, like hitting an unseen wall. In the gray light filtering through the dust, we could see the back of an old wingback chair, grimy and tattered, facing toward the fireplace on the far wall of the room. There was no sign of great-granddad. Try as we might, we could not move forward. A voice seemed to come from the depths of the wingback chair. Don't worry, you'll have him back safe and sound. But first, you must listen to my weird wonder stories from a time long ago. When I'm done, just step back and leave. Great-grandfather will be found sleeping in the car. And we did. Here is a ghost story from the author of The Ransom of Red Chief. The Furnished Room by O. Henry Restless, shifting, fugacious as time itself is a certain vast bulk of the population of the red brick district of the Lower West Side. Homeless, they have a hundred homes. They flit from furnished room to furnished room, transients forever, transients in abode, transients in heart and mind. They sing home sweet home in ragtime. They carry their Laerts S. Penates in a bandbox. Their vine is entwined around a picture hat. A rubber plant is their fig tree. Hence, the houses of this district, having had a thousand dwellers, should have a thousand tales to tell. Dull ones, no doubt. But it would be strange if there could not be found a ghost or two in the wake of all these vagrant guests. One evening after dark, a young man prowled among these crumbling red mansions ringing their bells. At the twelfth, he rested his lean hand baggage upon the step and wiped the dust from his hat band and forehead. The bell sounded faint and far away in some remote, hollow depth. To the door of this, the twelfth house, whose bell he had rung, came a housekeeper who made him think of an unwholesome surfeited worm that had eaten its nut to the hollow shell and now sought to fill the vacancy with edible lodgers. He asked if there was a room to let. Come in, said the housekeeper. Her voice came from her throat. Her throat seemed lined with fur. I have the third floor back, vacant since a week back. Should you wish to look at it? The young man followed her up the stairs. A faint light from no particular source mitigated the shadows of the hall. They trod noiselessly upon a stair carpet that its own loom would have forsworn. It seemed to have become vegetable, 
to have degenerated in that rank, sunless air to lush lichen or spreading moss that grew in patches to the staircase and was viscid under the foot like organic matter. At each turn of the stairs were vacant niches in the walls. Perhaps plants had been set within them. If so, they had died in that foul and tainted air. It may be that statues of the saints had stood there, but it was not difficult to conceive that imps and devils had dragged them forth in the darkness and down to the unholy depths of some furnished pit below. This is the room, said the housekeeper from her furry throat. It's a nice room. It ain't often vacant. I've had some most elegant people in it last summer. No trouble at all. Paid in advance to the minute. The water's at the end of the hall. Sprouse and Mooney kept it three months. They done a vaudeville sketch. Miss Beretta Sprawls. You may have heard of her. Oh, that was just the stage names. Right there over the dresser is where the marriage certificate hung, framed. The gas is here, and you can see there is plenty of closet room. It is a room everybody likes. It never stays idle long. Do you have many theatrical people rooming here? asked the young man. They comes and goes. A good proportion of my lodgers is connected with the theaters. Yes, sir, this is a theatrical district. Actor people never stays long anywhere. I get my share. Yes, they comes and goes. He engaged the room, paying for a week in advance. He was tired, he said, and would take possession at once. He counted out the money. The room had been made ready, she said, even to towels and water. As the housekeeper moved away, he put for the thousandth time the question that he carried at the end of his tongue. A young girl, Miss Fashioner, Miss Eloise Fashioner, do you remember such a one among your lodgers? She would be singing on the stage, most likely. A fair girl of medium height and slender with reddish gold hair and a dark mole near her left eyebrow. No, I don't remember the name. Them stage people have names they change as often as their rooms. They comes and they goes. No, I don't recall that one to mind. No, always no. Five months of ceaseless interrogation and the inevitable negative. So much time spent by day in questioning managers, agents, schools, and choruses. By night, among the audiences of theaters from the all-star cast, down to music halls so low that he dreaded to find what he most hoped for. He who had loved her best had tried to find her. He was sure that since her disappearance from home, this great water-girt city held her somewhere. But it was like a monstrous quicksand, shifting its particles constantly with no foundation, its upper granules of today buried tomorrow in slime and ooze. The furnished room received its latest guest with a first glow of pseudo-hospitality, a hectic, haggard, perfunctory welcome like the specious smile of a demi-rep. The sophisticated comfort came in reflected gleams from the decayed furniture the ragged brocade upholstery of a couch and two chairs, a foot-wide cheap pier glass between the two windows, from one or two gilt picture frames, and a brass bedstead in a corner. The guest reclined inert upon a chair, while the room, confused in speech as though it was an apartment in Babel, tried to discourse to him of its diverse tenancy. A polychromic rug, like some brilliant-flowered rectangle tropical islet, lay surrounded by a billowy sea of soiled matting. 
Upon the gay papered wall were those pictures that pursue the homeless from one house to house. The Huguenot lovers, the first quarrel, the wedding breakfast, Psyche at the fountain. The mantle's chastely severe outline was ingloriously veiled behind some pert drapery drawn rakishly askew like the sashes of the Amazonian ballet. Upon it was some desolate flotsam cast aside by the rooms marooned when a lucky sail had borne them to a fresh port. A trifling vase or two, pictures of actresses, a medicine bottle, some stray cards out of a deck. One by one, as the characters of a cryptograph become explicit, the little signs left by the furnished room's procession of guests developed a significance. The threadbare space in the rug in front of the dresser told that a lovely woman had marched in the throng. The tiny fingerprints on the wall spoke of little prisoners trying to feel their way to sun and air. A splattered stain rained like the shadow of a bursting bomb witnessed where a hurled glass or bottle had splintered with its contents against the wall. Across the pier glass had been scrawled with a diamond in staggering letters, the name Marie. It seemed that the secession of dwellers in the furnished room had turned in fury, perhaps tempted beyond forbearance by its glarish coldness, and wreaked upon it their passions. The furniture was chipped and bruised. The couch, distorted by bursting springs, seemed a horrible monster that had been slain during the stress of some grotesque convulsion. Some more potent upheaval had cloven a great slice from the marble mantle. Each plank in the floor owed its particular cant and shriek as from a separate and individual agony. It seemed incredible that all this malice and injury had been wrought upon the room by those who had called it for a time their home. And yet it may have been the cheated home instinct, surviving blindly, the resentful rage at false household gods that had kindled their wrath. A hut that is our own, we can sweep and adorn and cherish. The young tenant in the chair load these thoughts to file, soft-shod through his mind, while there drifted into the room furnished sounds and furnished scents. He heard in one room a tittering and incontinent slack laughter, in others the monologue of a scold, the rattling of dice, a lullaby, and one crying dully. Above him, a banjo's tinkled with spirit. Doors banged somewhere. The elevated trains roared intermittently. A cat yowled miserably upon a back fence. And he breathed the breath of the house, a dank savor rather than a smell a cold, musty effluum as though from underground vaults mingled with the reeking exhalations of linoleum and mildewed and rotten woodwork. Then suddenly, as he rested there, the room was filled with the strong, sweet odor of mignonette. It came as upon a single buffet of wind with such sureness and fragrance and emphasis that it almost seemed a living visitant. And the man cried aloud, What, dear? as though he'd been called and sprang up and faced about. The rich odor clung to him, wrapped him around. He reached out his arms for it, all of his senses for the time confused and commingled. How could one be preemptively called by an odor? Surely it must have been a sound. But was it not the sound that had touched, 
that had caressed him? She has been in the room, he cried, and sprang to wrest from it a token, for he knew he would recognize the smallest thing that had belonged to her or that she had touched. This enveloping scent of minuet, the odor that she had loved and made her own, whence came it? The room had been but carelessly set in order, scattered upon the flimsy dresser scarf or half a dozen hairpins, those discreet, indistinguishable friends of womankind, feminine of gender, infinite of mood, and uncommunicative of tense. These he ignored, conscious of their triumphant lack of identity. Ransacking the drawers of the dresser, he came upon a discarded, tiny, ragged handkerchief. He held it to his face. It was racy and insolent with heliotrope. He hurled it to the floor. In another drawer, he found odd buttons, a theater program, a pawnbroker's card, two lost marshmallows, and a book on the divination of dreams. In the last was a woman's black satin hair bow, which halted him poised between ice and fire. But the black satin hair bow also is femininity's demure, impersonal, common ornament, and tales no tales. And then he transversed the room like a hound on a scent, skimming the walls, considering the corners of the bulging matting on his hands and knees, rummaging mantel and tables, the curtains and hangings, the drunken cabinet in the corner, for a visible sign. Unable to perceive that she was there beside, around, against, within, above him, clinging to him, wooing him, calling him poignantly through the finer senses, even though his grosser ones become cognizant of the call. Once again he answered loudly, Yes, dear, and turned wild-eyed to gaze on vacancy, for he could not yet discern form and color and love and outstretched arms in the odor of minuet. O God, whence that odor, and since when have odors had a voice to call? Thus he groped. He burrowed in crevices and corners and found corks and cigarettes. These he passed in passive contempt. But once he found in a fold of matting a half-smoked cigar, and this he ground beneath his heel with a green and trenchant oath. He sifted the room from end to end. He found dreary and ignoble small records of many a paralytic tenant, but of her whom he sought, and who may have lodged there, and whose spirit seemed to hover there, he found no grace. And then he thought of the housekeeper. He ran from the haunted room downstairs to a door that showed a crack of light. She came out to his knock. He smothered his excitement as best he could. Will you tell me, madam, he sought her, who occupied the room I have before I came? Yes, sir, I can tell you again. Twas Sprouse and Mooney, as I said. Miss B. Sprouse, it was in the theaters, but Mrs. Mooney she was. My house is well known for respectability. The marriage certificate hung framed on a nail over. What kind of a lady was Miss Sprouse in looks, I mean? Why, black-haired, sir, short and stout, with a comical face. They left a week ago Tuesday, and before they occupied it. Why, there was a single gentleman connected with the drain business. He left owing me a week. Before him was Mrs. Crowder and her two children that stayed four months. And back of them was old Mr. Doyle, whose sons paid for him. He kept the room six months. That goes back a year, sir, and further I do not remember. He thanked her and crept back to his room. The room was dead. 
The essence that had vivified it was gone. The perfume of minuet had departed. In its place was the old, stale odor of moldy house furniture, of atmosphere in storage. The ebbing of his hope drained his faith. He sat staring at the yellow singing gaslight. Soon he walked to the bed and began to tear the sheets into strips. With the blade of his knife, he drove them tightly into every crevice around windows and door. When all was snug and taut, he turned out the light, then turned the gas on full again and laid himself gratefully upon the bed. It was Mrs. McCool's night to go with the can for beer, so she fetched it and sat with Mrs. Purdy in one of those subterranean retreats where housekeepers gather and the worm dieth seldom. I rented out my third floor back this evening, Mrs. Purdy, across a fine circle of foam. A young man took it. He went up to bed two hours ago. Now did ye, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am, said Mrs. McCool, with intense admiration. You do be a wonder for renting rooms of that kind. And did ye tell him then? She concluded in a husky whisper, laden with mystery. Rooms, said Mrs. Purdy, in her furious tones, are furnished for to rent. I did not tell him, Mrs. McCool. Tis right ye are, ma'am. Tis by renting rooms we kept alive. We have this row sense of business, ma'am. They be many people will reject the renting of a room if they be told a suicide had been after dying in the bed of it. As you say, we has our living to be making, remarked Mrs. Purdy. Tis, ma'am, tis true. Tis just one week ago this day I helped you lay out the third floor back. A pretty slip of a Colleen she was to be killing herself with the gas. A sweet little face she had, Mrs. Purdy, ma'am. She'd have been called handsome, as you say, said Mrs. Purdy, assenting but critical. But for that mole she had a growing by her left eyebrow. Do fill up your glass again, Mrs. McCool. The End And on the way home we heard great-grandfather mumbling in his sleep. Such marvelous stories, he said. Such marvelous stories. I haven't heard these since I was a child. And he promptly fell back asleep.